You are listening to Service Course by The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello, I'm Tom Wally, and I'm going to do. I'm going to introduce Lizzie this week because I didn't last week. And I took a last month, sorry, I took her by surprise. So, and I'm with Lizzie Banks, but not just Lizzie Banks. Team EF. Hang on, how do Education, I... Tibco, SVB. <laughs> That's how I say it. Um, I'm so excited, Lizzie, to be the first person on the planet to announce your team for 2022. <laughs> what a thrill for me to unveil that. Well, um, I'm, I'm really glad that you can all hear it here first. Um, of course, service course as always. You know, the, f- the first podcast to get the big scoop on uh, my professional news so yeah really really happy to announce it here well you know maybe we have some listeners who only listen to service course and don't read um, traditional cycling media so for some people perhaps this is a really really big reveal of what I'm up to for the next two years well I mean, so, I, mean I wanted to announce it on uh, last month's show but we weren't allowed even though it was up on pro cycling stats at the time yeah that was uh, a little glitch I think that um, so I think that the full team roster was sent under embargo to first well to a number of media cycling outlets cycling media outlets and um, I think first cycling had it up first uh, then pro cycling stats cottoned onto it first cycling realized that it was under embargo removed it um pro cycling stats didn't i don't know whether that's because they got their information from somewhere that wasn't under embargo that was essentially kind of um you know freely available to everybody and yeah it had actually been on pro cycling stats i think 11 of the 14 riders that are going have been up there for maybe a month and a half but surprisingly not that many people cottoned on um or at least it hadn't it hadn't kind of escaped to the wider cycling media so uh, we had the, it was the big release a few weeks ago now, uh, talked about it over on Cycling Podcast Seminar. Um, but yeah, it's just a, it's a really exciting thing for me and it's exactly what I need after just a really rough, rough year. Uh, to be honest, like personally, a rough year and a half and I I feel now almost like, um, I was actually watching the Zwift Academy finals Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And it was it was great. And, you know, the excitement of these young pros when they first see that bike and they go, oh, my goodness, the name sticker on my bike. Wow. DI2. Wow. Shram Red. And that excitement is almost how I feel now going into this team. It's just completely new for me. It's completely fresh. The team is stepping up from where they've been in 2020. So 2021, sorry. Um, their team is stepping up so much. The amount of infrastructure that's going in. Basically, last year they had one. They had the team owner Linda, and then they had Rachel Hederman, who was the manager and the director, and just did everything on the ground, day to day, everything. Now they've got Rachel Hederman as the manager, Crystal Harriman's as the European manager, and two DSs, Daniel Holmfoder and Tim Harris. Um, and, you know, just that side of the infrastructure shows you how much things are stepping up. So it's super exciting. We've got some incredible partners coming on board, um, some of which I still can't tell you about because they're going to get released in January. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we're with Rafa on the clothing clothing side. We've got Cannondale Bikes. And it's just the whole the whole thing, the whole initiative is just super exciting and Tibco SVB as a team have done such great things for so many years and now they are finally being enabled to 
really up their game and it's just brilliant i'm so i'm so happy to be part of it well two questions right lizzie uh, obviously you're gonna get a load of new nice new kit out of this right um can you get me one of those nice ef bucket hats please i want one of those i, I will try i will try right? i want one of those but also i'm interested because in, obviously you know ef alternative race calendar i i know for a fact that you've mentioned cape epic is potentially on a on a program does that mean you get things like you know mountain bike gravel bikes what do you you know is it going to be the whole thing well, unfortunately, Cape Epic is off oh, the no. calendar. Yeah, it's it's really it's a shame, but um, because of unfortunately the huge uncertainty with the global situation, um, and the fact that uh, we are moving into a very uncertain period over the next few months, uh, the team felt it was best not to have Cape Epic on the calendar. When is when is Cape was, Epic? Is that is that around? Is that now? Is it coming up? It was March. Oh, it's March. March, okay. March, April time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So quite I can early understand in the that. spring. Yeah. So if it's you know because it's an eight day stage race and if it gets cancelled, it can be huge disruption to a calendar. So um, I've got my provisional calendar at the moment. Um, actually, I haven't specifically got any gravel races on there at the moment. That's not to say I won't be doing anything because I would really, really, really like to. But the the primary goal of the team is that we are a road world tour racing team, but we will also do gravel events. Emily Newsom, um, who is an American rider, she lives in Texas. Uh, she's actually doing the new Lifetime Gravel series or ni- Lifetime Off-Road series, which is gravel and mountain biking over in the US. It's a really exciting new series. Um, so that'll be a big focus for her. Uh, I really hope to do some some events, uh, which I'm going to propose to the team. There's something that I want to do personally. I want to attempt to um, a fastest known time on the the Peak 200, which is a mountain biking route in the Peak District. That's nice. Um, that's a good. That's a good so, goal. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah, and you know I've got a break in May, and it just seems like a really cool time to do something of things. So, my calendar. I'm really pleased with the calendar that I've got which is obviously provisional things change as we know um but it allows me space in the season to do some other things um and i think it's great so we'll see uh, i'm gonna try and try and negotiate a gravel bike or a mountain bike in there yeah of course <laughs> you've got to do it but yeah it's it's really great and i think that just just you know that option to do something else is such great motivation for the riders Well, before we move on to the rest of the episode, I did one more thing I wanted to ask you about, Lizzie. Um, we talked about it last month. You went on uh, your own sort of mini training camp to Greece. And I was saying, like, I don't think of Greece as a sort of cycling hotspot. I don't see many teams going out there or many riders going out there. But you have had, a, you, you've had an incredible time. And you were telling me, like, there's a, a two, you found a two-hour climb. You know, Tom, if I remember rightly, you actually laughed at me when I said I I was going to Greece and you kind of said, why? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was absolutely brilliant. And not only have I been out there, Wout van Aert went out there with Creelan Creelan Child's team. Yeah, so I spoke about this um, actually with Ian on the Christmas Conversation. I've got to edit edit that later today. (laughs) So uh, that's why I don't know. I'm sorry, so that's going to be um, released for friends of the podcast over the Christmas period. So Ian Boswell, you were talking about that, obviously. Ian Boswell, sorry. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, make sure you sign up as a friend of the podcast if you're not one already. and You can get to hear all about Greece. But I will tell you a little bit about it now. Yeah, I went out for two weeks for a kind of um, early season camp. And for me, it was exactly what I needed. I've 
not really ridden my bike very much this year. I just needed to ride, to get in some miles, to enjoy some good weather um, and forget about all of the stress of the past year. Uh, and it was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. We stayed in Athens for the first two days, which, you know, capital cities and incredible cycling aren't really two things that go hand in hand, but it was honestly brilliant. There are some incredible mountains on on the outskirts of Athens, you know, hour long and more climbs. Um, we went up one, which uh, I think I described on my social media as a mini Sacalabra and realised, well, actually it's longer than Sacalabra <laughs> by quite a fair margin, nearly double, but really, truly spectacular. And uh, the whole two weeks, actually, the drivers were, well, when we saw drivers, which was very rare once you were actually in the mountains, incredibly considerate. I don't think I had a single close pass, even in Athens, in the whole two weeks. And I think I'd barely get out the door for, you know, for five minutes without having one yeah. in uh, Sheffield and the Peak District. But um, yeah, just just really, truly, really, truly incredible. Go and have a look over on my commute because I, um, yeah, I, I documented all the rides over on there and you can see everything and I'm going to create a collection uh, with all of the rides that I did so that if you're interested, you can have a look. But it's um, a magical, wonderful place to ride, and the the people are just brilliant, and the food is amazing. So, I think, um, but perhaps, perhaps you know, you haven't got the level of uh, road surface that you have in <laughs> maybe the, the you know Valencia or Mallorca. But um, generally, the roads were pretty good, to be honest, and uh, it, it wasn't kind of. It wasn't really rough, but there's also a lot of gravel riding there. So if I were to go again, if I were to go again with any bike that I possibly could, I'd, I'd go with, you know, something with 32C tyres or something, because there's so many incredible gravel roads that you can explore up these, yeah, two hour long mountains. I mean, 2,000 2, metre high mountains. So it's um, big, big mountains and big views and so surprising. I think I did one of the best rides I've ever done of my life out of... Um, town called Astros which is near to Naf Nafplio on the Peloponnese um, brilliant I, c I really cannot recommend it enough it was a um, brilliant place to cycle but maybe don't go in August because it's 40 degrees but uh, this time of year or late autumn or early spring I think it would be perfect chute, chute à l'arrière du peloton cycling podcast team car at the back of the pack please this episode of Service Course is sponsored by LinkedIn now today, many small business owners are busier than ever. Time spent searching for and interviewing candidates can take time away from managing and growing a business. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has made it easier to get the candidates worth interviewing faster, and it's free. Now we've used LinkedIn here at the Cycling Podcast to recruit producers. I've also used it personally for my own business. I work for myself um, as a freelance producer, so... I'm often responding to job adverts on LinkedIn. I'm also pleading for jobs on LinkedIn and letting people know that I'm available. But I also have a production company myself called Stripped Media and we've used LinkedIn ourselves to hire for big projects, radio production, podcast production projects that we're doing. You can create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs and it reaches the world's largest professional network with over 30 million people in the UK alone. Focus on candidates with the skills and experience that you need. Use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified people. 
LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates worth interviewing faster and you can post a job for free. Just visit linkedin.com slash cycle. Again, that's linkedin.com slash cycle to post a job for free. Just a warning though, if you do post a podcast production job, I may apply. Well, Lizzie, um, you were talking about unlocking the gravel in uh, in Greece there. I think that's probably a nice way to seg into this next section. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, in this press conference episode, um, we've had some brilliant questions from some lovely listeners. And the first one is from Mark Walsh. So I'll just throw straight over to you, Mark. Um, here you go. Hello, Lizzie. Hello, Tom. Um, this is Mark from Kingston, a long-time friend of the podcast. Uh, I had a quick question. What do you think of the classified power shift hub? Is this the kind of thing we could see in the pro peloton soon? Is it the end of two-by drivetrains? I can't work out if this is the future of gravel biking or bike touring. What do you think? Love the show. Keep keep up the good work. I think that is an ace question. I This um, bit of tech, I've actually... I was aware of it, but I sort of missed it. And I'm, I'm sure you were the same, Lizzie, because it's been around a little while. <laughs> the world's worst tech <laughs> show presenters that we're admitting that there's this incredible piece of new tech that is going to change the game with probably the most popular style of riding yeah. out there at the moment. Yeah. And neither of us knew about it. Well, you knew about it. I have to say, I, this had completely gone under my radar. I have an excellent excuse that I have just been offline the whole year. And... Um, I simply wasn't on the internet. Um, I have missed so much news. I only found out that a ship was stuck in the Suez Canal <laughs> about a month afterwards. I saw some pictures of, uh, you know, these memes of bike riders pulling a ship and I had absolutely no idea what was going on. So it's not just the PowerShift hub I've missed. It's um, huge global news. Lizzie, wait till, <laughs> wait till you hear about COVID. It's going to blow your mind. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, really much. Um, but, you know, to be honest, though, about that the the uh, the power shift, I I do think it is a game changer, and I, I think there's a reason we were talking before we we started recording about there's a reason why perhaps it hasn't caught on or has become you know a bigger part of our consciousness, and that's because it's not been um, widely compatible with a lot of bikes, but that is sort of set to change now. I think. Yeah, I think first of all, let's actually just talk about what it mm, is. Yeah. So it is uh, a really, really exciting piece of technology that allows you to get rid of your front derailleur. Which but I it, hate, by the way, front derailleurs. Can, cannot, <laughs> fix, cannot fix them, cannot align them, cannot do anything with them. No, well, exactly. I mean, I'm in a very privileged position that I am running electric gears. I have had a professional mechanic set up my bike and with electric gears, once you've had somebody who knows what they're doing set it up, to be honest, it's pretty perfect. But uh, I have also been a normal cyclist for much of my life and I've also used very uh, annoying <laughs> cabled front mechs, which maybe you spend four hours setting them up and they do actually work and then the cable loosens a little bit and then you drop your bloody chain and then it goes down between your bottom bracket and your crank set and it rips the carbon out and you just can't get the stupid thing to work and it's so frustrating. But this technology eliminates that. So it is a two-speed gear in the rear hub of the bike. The first gear is one to one ratio and the second gear is one to 0.7. So that means that if you're running a 50 tooth chain ring at the front, 
and you're in the one-to-one gear, it will feel like a 52 chain ring. If you then press a button and change to the one to 0.7, it will feel like you are running a 34 chain ring. So this technology is, I mean, I think it is so exciting. It's all in the rear hub um, and you have to buy the rear hub attached to the rear wheel you have to buy it actually as a wheel set mm. so it is quite expensive it's 2,399 euros I think you as... have to use their cassette as well don't you I think at the moment you have to use their cassette yeah because um, the mechanics of the, the the gear mechanics are in a conical um, a conical shaped piece of the hub which is where the spider of the cassette usually sits so when you would usually thread each piece of the cassette onto the the splines and the spider you're not able to do that because there's kind of a a cone shape Mm. holding all of the rear gears so what is actually also really cool is they have designed and made this beautiful absolutely beautiful cassette out of one piece of steel um and it's it's almost ho- you know it is hollow um and the the cogs just kind of they, you need to just go and have a look online and google it because it's just so beautiful the way they they link to each other um and it's available in 11 speed it's available in 12 speed now as well uh and because you have to use their hub obviously and their cassette uh it means that you have to buy everything as a package So there's a satellite shifter that you put on your bars um, and that transmits to a Bluetooth receiver in the rear through axle, uh, which also has a tiny one watt motor, which changes the shift. Okay, so now why, other than the fact that you get rid of the stupid, frustrating front derailleur, why else is this such a game changer? Well, I haven't ridden it, but everybody who has says that, and the manufacturers classified, say that you can change under as much pressure as you like you can be sprinting and you can change and you can have a perfect uninterrupted shift now everybody who has reviewed and ridden this world ridden this bike in the real world has said that this shift is like nothing you would be able to experience even with uh, an electronic shift on a bike and i think that's that's really exciting in itself but the fact that it eliminates the faff of the front derailleur mm-hmm. um it eliminates the dirt it eliminates yeah, things going wrong absolutely i i, I think i can't see how this isn't going to become ubiquitous with gravel riding to be honest and i know that if i were to go and buy a new gravel bike now without any kind of sponsor commitments or anything like that and a lot of money in my pocket. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, let's let's be honest about that. Um, it is something that I would buy. The final thing to note is that you don't have to have a an electronic rear derailleur. Um, so you can still have a cabled rear derailleur. So if you want to upgrade your own one by system now, or even your own two by system, the only thing that you will need is um, a narrow wide chain ring. Uh, at the front one by narrow wide chain ring um and then the the whole system the whole power shift system which you can buy from classified but yeah it's i think it's really really exciting i think even like you know even when you travel with your bike you know there's always that thing when you put your bike in a bike box you get it out and it's never quite right there's always a little bit of fiddling to do isn't there and i think maybe you know that would just reduce that as well so you know for me 
the ease and simplicity would be uh, the, the, the big draw. So yeah, I, I, I think it is a game changer. I wouldn't be surprised to see that tech bought by a slightly bigger company and then incorporated into their wheels and then you'd see it then it become ubiquitous. You know, if, if Shimano bought it, for instance, or you know, or another company, mm. then you'd then you'd see it everywhere. But yeah, it's it's good. Uh, I've got a friend who's got a dog called Classified, by the way. <laughs> just uh, just throw that in there. He did he didn't want to reveal the dog's name, so he just calls it Classified. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, yeah. I mean, so <laughs> back to the actual technology. I think that you know, so many t- so so often we hear things released where. Um, you want, you know, you think, oh, that's a really, really good product, but is it actually going to work its way in? I think this one will, and I think that it won't be that long before we see it um, across the board. To be honest, I think it's absolutely brilliant. Shoot, uh, shoot that out of peloton, cycling podcast team car, the back of the pack, please. That was Seb PK once again interrupting to remind me to tell you that this episode of Service Course is sponsored by NordVPN. Now, I love NordVPN. I've used it a lot in the past. Over the last two years, it's been a little bit tricky to leave the country, so I haven't used it at all because I'm just not travelling. But the Cycling Podcast is still on the road. We're still at the big races. We're still at the Grand Tours. So Lionel and Rich and Daniel are always out and about across Europe Now, you might not know this, but Lionel is our resident hacker. In fact, Johnny Lee Miller's character in the film Hackers was based entirely on Lionel. So I thought it'd be best to ask him to tell you what NordVPN is all about and why you need one. It stands for Virtual Private Network, and it basically uh, offers you protection and security when you are online. And I've been using NordVPN since before they started advertising in the podcast, in fact, just because I'm aware, I became aware, really, that surfing uh, the internet, connecting online in hotspots or hotel receptions, probably not the smartest and most secure way to uh, carry on our business. And so I signed up for NordVPN and uh, I know that when I am uh, logged in, basically all of the data and details um, are secure and safe. So nobody can snoop on our bank account details or get up to any mischief, um, which is really important, especially if you are working on the road, but equally if you're just um, on a leisure trip. You don't want to uh, have your tablet or phone or laptop hacked at all and using internet connections that you're not 100% certain about is a risk too far for me anyway. Uh, if you would like to find out more or even get up to 73% off a two-year plan plus four months bonus access to NordVPN protection for free, go to nordvpn.com TCP or use the code cycle. This is a limited time offer, so be quick, but you can get 73% off a two-year plan plus four months free at nordvpn.com TCP or use the code cycle. And those details are in the show notes. All right, Lizzie, put the cassette in the tape player, press play. Let's have another question. Hi, my name is Ochi and I'm in Dublin. I have a question for you about road bike tires. A few years ago, I fell off my bike at a low speed and broke both bones in my forearm. I never discovered the reason I fell, except that it was very wet. At the time, I moved from 23 inch to 28 inch tires, and I'm on 25 inch right now. But every winter, I face the same conundrum. What tires are good for winter? 
I find that reading reviews in magazines and on websites can be a waste of time because there's always the suspicion that some of the reviews are sponsored. I find the same with bike reviews, where almost every bike gets four plus stars. There are also some reviewers in the media who won't say what kit is good kit, maybe because they don't want to be seen to be promoting any particular brand. I've heard some pros say things like, gator skins are rubbish, but then they probably get top of the range tires for free. This all leaves the average cyclist not really knowing what is good kit. So the question I'm asking is, what are good winter tires for riding on Irish or UK roads? I love the show. Thank you and happy Christmas. Well, you're right there because I would never, uh, I don't often trust a pro recommendation if they're on the record. If they speak to you, you know, in private, that's fine. But a pro recommendation on the record, obviously there are sponsor commitments. There's not a lot of tyre choice out there though. That's, that, that does make this easier because there's really, you know, you've got Vittoria on one hand and then you've got, well, who else is there, really, other than Continental, Continental and... They're, you know, those are the big, it, big two, really? I'd say, yeah. really. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I mean, of course, there are lots of others. We're using Wolfpack this year, for instance, but they have, they're have a very small manufacturer based in Germany. They have one tyre, um, and really it's a race tyre. Um, so although it's a brilliant race tyre, um, there's not really many options. And they're also quite dear for your average rider and by the way tom thanks for just writing off everything i've said there <laughs> in the all every single episode of this podcast for the last two years by saying you don't trust anything that a pro rider yeah. says i think you do i think you're good though because you do caveat things where you sometimes say you know i i can't talk about this uh, there is a you know there is a sponsor commitment here so you're upfront about that stuff but i mean with tires i mean so well for a start i mean the, the, the one thing to, to think about first of all is what are you doing with your tire isn't it it's like it's the pressure for a start i mean that's the thing that that's the thing that i've probably got wrong through most of the time that i've been riding because i was still of the kind of the opinion that you go as hard as you as you physically can on those tires and still stay upright um which you know the thinking's changed massively so that's one thing um what would your recommendation be i one hundred percent wholeheartedly agree with you about the tires and uh sorry the tire pressures and um I actually we had this email conversation about this question um and I said that yes, the tires are important, but what is even more important is the tire pressure, so depending what frame you've got um I would recommend it about you know going up a size or two in terms of the actual tire size, and you know a lot of frames these days will accommodate a 30 even a 32 width tire so then you can lower the pressure so much and therefore you can get more grip um and that's really really important to to you know have a play around with the tire pressure see how low you can go even if you're just doing laps around the block mm. saying like does this does this feel okay is this too squidgy because i think you will find you can go so much lower than you think you can we spoke to cameron Mason, um, cycl- brilliant British cyclocross rider um, in last year's press conference episode, actually, and he had brilliant insight about tyre pressure. So go back and listen to that episode from December last year if you haven't listened already, um, or if you just want to refresh about how to set the perfect mm. pressure. But in terms of kind of what tyre to use, so this question was really focused on the roads of UK and Ireland, because let's be honest, they are rubbish mm. <laughs> they're not rubbish but they're very heavy and they're they're full of holes you know a, a british winter is very different to a spanish winter massively, massively. um and you know of course you'll find a similar thing in you know netherlands germany but i think even then their road surfaces are so much better than you have over here 
So in terms of what tyre, it's it's difficult, but I would recommend something that's seen as a training tyre rather than a racing tyre. Definitely, 100%. In the winter, essentially, yeah. I mean, in the summer, you'll get away with a much faster tyre, I think. But the winter, you know, just you know, just go in and get get those thick, big, heavy yeah. tyres. And, and I think this is one of the things, you know, when I was, I guess, my first few years of cycling, I would do the same. I would read reviews and I'd say, it would say, oh, this is a fast tyre, this is a slow tyre. And I would kind of think, what on earth do they mm. mean? And then as I started using more and more tyres or switching from a training tyre to a racing tyre, I could really feel that difference. Like I could really feel, okay, this rolls a lot faster. Um, I actually put latex tubes in my husband's bike because yep. he needs all the help that he can get. <laughs> um, and... You know, he was so, he kind of thought, is it really going to make a difference? And he was so surprised Mm. with the difference that it made and the difference that it made to the the feel of the ride on the road. So, um, yes, tyres are faster or slower, but it really doesn't matter when it comes to winter riding. You just want to be safe. And you also really want to reduce that risk of a puncture. So something like a Vittoria Rubino, um, I've used those over the winter and they're really good and they're so generally so puncture resistant i find that they last quite a long time if you use something like the continental gp 5000s i love them me too me too but they they are softer and they are quite expensive i would use i would use the four seasons the continental the four seasons one is is great the the one caveat i would say with that and is this is in the way you set your bike up if you can go tubeless do it because those tires are much they're, 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 they're a lot less malleable than, than more race tyres. Yeah. If you get a puncture when you're out and you've got cold hands, it can be a night. It can reduce you to tears trying to change that. You know, it, you can snap as many uh, tyre levers as you want. It's just, yeah. That is true. And it's the same with the Rubinos, actually. I found it, I found them difficult to seat onto, onto rims because they have uh, the wire bead, which is meant for the tubeless tyres. So um, that's, that, is, that can be a frustration, but it depends where you live. Like somewhere where I live, you simply don't get punctures. But if you live somewhere where there's a lot of flints, I was actually talking to Richard Moore about this. He was saying that he was just so frustrated and uh, he got, I think he got three punctures in two days. And the final one, he said he just swore out loud because he was so frustrated with it and he was so cold. And I said, well, you need to go tubeless because where you live, Mm. there's so many small flinty stones that get stuck in your tyres. That will hugely reduce the number of times you have to change your punctures. But... With regards to tyre levers, um, this actually brings me back to Rafa because, do you know, Tom, there's only one Rafa item that I currently own. So I'm really, really excited to to go to Rafa next year because I have this one Rafa item and it is the best thing I have ever used in my life. And it was free. Is it the uh, Rafa coffee machine? <laughs> no, no. It's a pair of Rafa tyre levers, which I picked up at um, the Lincoln Grand Prix, the British National Championships. And they are so good because they are so beefy. And I actually got loads of punctures out in Greece um, because I hit some giant potholes. Uh, and I also took a tyre out there that had a big slash in it, which was... Whoops. Thankfully, I'd taken a spare tyre with me. Um, but I was so fast to change those punctures because these tyre levers, I could actually I could actually lever the tyre into place because they were so beefy that they weren't going to snap. So a really good pair of tyre levers. I know it seems... You know, you're looking at tyre levers online. You're like, do I want to spend five quid on a pair of tyre levers? Yeah, you do. If they're good ones, do it because it will it will stop you crying by the side of the road, getting hypothermia. Um, it is it is an investment worth making into a good pair of tyre levers. So yeah, I hope that um, 
makes things slightly clearer than mud on the tyre front. Um, basically get something that's going to have some good puncture resistance. Probably a training tyre, not a racing tyre. Um, I don't think you need to spend the earth, but it is worth getting a decent tyre with good puncture resistance. Um, it because pr- it will have more grip. It says a pressure, Lizzie, just a quick one there. Is there a kind of uh, formula for for tyre pressure in terms of like your weight to the sort of tyre pressure? Is, is there anything you can refer to? I mean, I always go, I mean, I'm like, I'm a 60 kilo rider. I mean, I would, I would go as, so I can go quite low. So, I mean, I might do 80 PSI um, yeah. on a, in a winter tyre, yeah. I would have thought. I actually, I'm running 25C tyres at the moment and um, I am a smidge over 60 kilos and 80 is my max, mm. absolutely my max. So I will often, you know, or often actually it'll go down to 60 even, yeah. um, but I never ever pump it higher than 80. But I don't actually know if there is a formula. Basically, uh, my wonderful mechanics often um, tell me what to ride. Actually, I race on much less than that. Really? Uh, much wow. less. Yeah, yeah. So, again, it depends whether you're running tubeless, tubular, or clincher. Uh, and that changes between between them and also depends on the width of the tyre. But I don't know, actually. Um, have a Google. Sorry, that's not a very good answer. <laughs> but, but have a Google and have a play around and it's probably lower than you think. Uh, and just try not to go too high. Hello, Tom and Lizzie. It's Richard from France here. Um, Several years ago, Rob Penn, a British journalist, wrote a book called It's All About the Bike, about his quest to build his dream bike. It's a brilliant book. And he picked out each component and told us the the story of each component, the company behind it, the people behind them, etc. And in the end, went for a custom-made steel frame by Brian Ruick rather than a carbon one because he wanted to use it for long-distance touring and wanted to be able to repair it and things like that. It is a great book and a really fascinating exercise. Um, And I wondered, Tom and Lizzie, what might feature on your ideal or dream bike? Frame, wheels, components. Um, Perhaps you go for something you've already used, one of your team bikes, maybe Lizzie. Though it'd be very brave of you if you don't pick your current team bike or something completely different, maybe a bike from a particular era. I don't know. Um, but what might feature on your dream bike? And I'm thinking about everything, you know, tires, wheels, uh, frame, obviously. Um, yeah, let, let us know your thoughts. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Richard from France, for your excellent question there. Um I actually don't think I'm particularly well placed to answer this question because I actually haven't ridden that many different type of bikes. I came to cycling relatively late. Um, I bought myself a £100 giant OCR, which was brilliant. (laughs) It did exactly what I needed. And then I moved on to carbon frames. I bought myself a um, a Focus's Alco. And then since then, I've had a run of kind of team frames. I had a Villia Cento XR. Um, I had a Boardman frame. I had, oh, what was my first? I had an Orbea Orca, and then I had an Orbea Orca again this year, and I've had a Chapter 2 bike. But they've all been, so I've had a lot of different bikes, but they've all been relatively similar. They've been carbon high-end race bikes meant for racing. I've not had experience on titanium frames, on steel frames. Um, Only recently I've had a mountain bike. I've not really ridden gravel bikes. So I don't think that I'm the best person to to describe my dream bike. But perhaps, Tom, if you've had some more experience 
And you're looking at me like I can't believe you're presenting this show. No, no, I'm just going to say like, I'm going to I'm going to talk about a dream bike, but it's not going to necessarily be uh, the sort of bike that has the mass appeal. So, so I mean, this kind of goes back to last month's show. So, my my, my dream build, obviously, I you know I come from a fixed gear uh, background just because it was super fashionable and it was super cool back then, and I loved it. So, kind of. Um, my that's when it comes to dream bikes that's where my heart lies with a very simple one geared um essentially essentially a track bike really so my dream build um and it would be all njs so uh if you don't know the term njs which is it's the um if you don't know it then listen listen to to last last month's episode but it is the it is the it is the stamp that means that this is every every part of this bike adheres to um the rules of kirin and the way and the way japanese kirin bikes are built um they're not particularly futuristic bikes they're you know they're still steel framed they occasionally use carbon for certain races but it would be a, a steel framed and it'd be done what i like about this i've got a bit i'm a bit of a japanophile i mean i've never been to japan but i'm desperate to go but i, I love um me too actually the, we can go together oh we'd be so good and uh, I, I just like um i love the um the, the sort of the, the way they treat artisans in in that country and the way that the sort of builders are, are respected no matter what what craft you know what they're making and and so i'd get something from like a, a master builder um the names i kind of the sort of top names of people like makino um nagasawa so something like by a, a master builder made for me and then it would be literally the they would just be the sort of generic njs parts really so you'd have um it would look very very old school very very old school you know uh, it wouldn't be a it wouldn't be a carbon tri-spoked wheel it would be a recess regular spoke room but yes that that would be my sort of dream dream build so when it comes to the road side of things and again this is sort of harking back to my era or what i liked when i really got into cycling and there's a there's a movie, I don't know if you've ever seen this, well, no one's seen this, but it's called The Hard Road, right? And uh, it was made sort of around uh, the end of the 90s, start of the 2000s, I couldn't tell you exactly when. Um, and it's all shot in the States. So it's, a, it's a great watch, we should actually do a watch along of this film one day, actually. Um, it's just in the, um, the period where there's a lot of great uh, domestic uh, American teams, and they're all... You know, the American side, US cycling is is um, having a lot of success off the back of Lance and, and, and that that era. So it's a big sport, but obviously these teams competing around America, they're doing a lot of um, town criterium, city centre criteriums, that sort of stuff. And it follows a small team, this doc. And um, the bikes they are riding, a lot of them, are titanium frames, which you know that I love. So light speed, a light speed titanium frame. But what makes the, the bikes look great is those tri-spoke front wheels which i think are now banned i think i think they were banned and i think they might have been slightly dangerous and slightly unreliable but those carbon tri-spoke front wheels on a road bike just look incredible so that would be sort of mine sort of you know turn of the you know turn of the century titanium frame uh carbon tri-spoke front wheel light speed yeah that'd be another dream build for me well i guess i'm gonna have to come up with my answer then aren't i i Okay, let's assume that if I, it's a dream build, I'm also doing whatever riding I want. Let's assume I've finished my professional career. 
Won the world championships <laughs> multiple times. <laughs> got myself a couple of couple of cobbles. Yep. Won Strada Bianchi. Got myself a yellow jersey at the Tour de France. I've done it. Done that. Now I can go and do anything. So what do I want to do? I think I want to ride around the world. And I want to go to all of these cool places. Not, you know, not a kind of round the world effort, but just explore everywhere. So I probably would go with a steel frame because of the nature of the fact that it is repairable um but maybe with a a carbon seat post maybe a carbon fork maybe not a carbon fork because oh i don't know i want to be able to repair it if it goes wrong it's got to have a lot of rack mounts it needs to be wide enough that i can put maybe 32 34 c tire in there so i can i can go all road all nearly all road (laughs) um and i definitely have di2 because i think it's just really really good maybe i'd have a classified power shift i was gonna ask i was gonna ask lizzie yeah i was gonna ask classified at the back yeah yeah Yeah, i'd probably have maybe uh yeah 50 50 34 so then you've got 34 34 on the back maybe even a maybe even a smaller chain ring on the front actually maybe like a 48 um because i'm gonna have a lot of gear to lug around the world on my adventures um i'd have some beautiful handmade bike bags to go on it uh, but they'd have to be very waterproof um and oh what else would i have i don't know i mean it's a bit boring really isn't it well, i don't know i mean boring. i mean i i know who's gonna make it who's gonna make it my friend rick bailey who runs cycles in motion grit spoke uh, he makes grit spoke brand of um steel frames beautiful steel frames and they also do really beautiful paint jobs and i know some people aren't really that keen on really nice paint jobs because they think oh well what about the bike but i'm gonna have a really good bike underneath i'm gonna have a perfectly fitted bike underneath and a beautiful paint job is just a wonderful thing you look at you look at the bike and you just you know you fall in love with it so maybe an iridescent paint job with my name handwritten in beautiful calligraphy mm. on the top tube and what's that um, Lizzie? If, you, if you just look closely at the rear chainstay what's that oh it's a couple of cats painted on there just a couple <laughs> of little cats yeah 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 and then some mountains and then you know something to commemorate all of my world championship wins <laughs> um <laughs> yeah so i'm sorry richard i'm sorry richard from france my uh, my answer is a bit boring but thankfully you've got some brilliant answers from tom there but basically i need to i need to ride more bikes so to ride more bikes and get more experience on different types of things and win a few world champs and win a few, yeah yeah there's that hurdle to <laughs> to get over as well it might be a little bit harder <laughs> the cycling podcast is supported by science in sport science in sport fueled by science thank you as ever to science in sport for their support of the cycling podcast and all that we do throughout 2021 and all the years before that they've been with us for such a long time and we are so grateful for their support i need to stock up on a few science in sport things myself and often uh, i'll send a few out as a christmas presents to the to my cycling friends as well if you want to get 25 percent off your next order with science in sport then go to scienceinsport.com and enter the offer code siscp25 that's siscp25 well our final question runs along the theme that we've been 
going along this episode, which really kind of proves where we're at with with riding at the moment, which is that everybody wants to get off road. Uh, since the pandemic, there's been a huge boom in all road, gravel road riding. Um, but a lot of us coming over from the road don't really have the skills, let's be honest. And I'm the same. But Unfortunately, I'm so stupid that I will go and do things <laughs> completely out of my comfort zone. But not everybody is quite as stupid as me. So firstly, I'm going to hand over to Grace, who has a brilliant question about this. And then we're going to go over to an interview with the wonderful Elena Jaskowska, who uh, recently created the School of Rocks, um, and Liam Glenn, her partner, who is the winner of the first ever... Sorry. Oh, no. Sorry. He's not the winner of the first ever... Liam Glenn, her partner, who won the Highland Trail 550 on a rigid single speed frame, who, well, Tom is a man after your own heart. He is. When you were saying about your perfect frame being a single speed, I thought you are going to love what is coming up in the Lizzie, later Lizzie, there on. is no chance I'm riding my perfect bike on anything other than a very smooth, very dry road. Okay. I'm just going to say <laughs> On that. a velodrome. On a velodrome. That's it. That's it. <laughs> You're not taking it around 550 miles of gruelling mountain biking terrain in the highlands of Scotland, then? I'm not even taking my body around 550 miles of gruelling terrain, so... (laughs) Well, over to Grace for your question, uh, and then the interview will follow. Hi, Lizzie and Tom. I'm Grace from the Peak District, and I've been loving the cycling podcast this last year or so, so thank you. Um, I have a question for you. I've been riding a road bike for quite a few years. Um, I've done quite a lot of long distance road events, road adventures, or at least road based adventures. Um, they've had the odd bit of gravel in here and there, uh, but largely I've stuck to the tarmac. Um, but this year I got my first gravel bike and I'm now in the world of off-road riding and I want to transfer everything I've done on the road um, in terms of adventures and all sorts of like long distance things um into the world of gravel and rocks basically um but what i found out recently is that my skills are somewhat lacking um and as a result i don't have confidence in doing any sort of long remote kind of adventures off-road um so i'm struggling to enjoy it as much uh which is a shame um do you have any advice um is there are there any resources i can go to um do you know anyone who i can talk to potentially um and should i be looking for a slightly different kit or anything that can make the job a bit easier or just incite a bit more confidence basically um yeah it'd be great to hear from some cool people who've done it before thank you So Grace has asked about skills moving off road and how to improve her skills. And I think this is part of a much bigger question about accessibility and cycling and how we can go off road without, well, you know, spending the earth and just learning what to do. So I thought I would ask maybe a power couple in British off-road cycling right now. Elena Jaskowska, who has just started the School of Rocks, which is an initiative that's won an award in its first few months of uh, being being a thing and Liam Glenn who is the winner of the Highland Trail 550 a absolutely brutal off-road race up in Scottish Highlands uh, and also well known for making his own bike bags so first off I'll start with you Elle what is the School of Rocks tell us all about it well the School of Rocks I guess kind of came out of how 
I got into off-road cycling and I had this amazing, supportive and very, very patient partner who would take me out. And I kind of realised that if everybody's relying on a partner, a friend who has the knowledge of where to go, the ability to break things down and explain them and the patience (laughs) to put up with you when you're like, oh, I hate this. (laughs) (laughs) and we're going to be waiting like there's a reason why the pace of of change um in off-road cycling particularly with sort of like gender balance and participation is moving at a glacial pace so I was like what can I do to like light a firecracker under this and kind of recognize that what I could do is I could I could break down some of the complexities of off-road cycling into a curriculum (laughs) um and essentially use the grassroots communities that are springing up everywhere um, to kind of get this out to people. So the School of Rocks is a a female-led community. So you have often in in places like maybe two or three friends who will put together a route um, and will lead a ride around that route. And each week the routes get a little bit harder. So it starts off and it's like you could take your road bike um it's like what we call like princess gravel um so um, like I guess what people have in in the states like you know nice wide double track smooth gravel nothing nothing big and gnarly certainly no shredding happens in week one um or like it's not required um and then slowly we we build things up because that's the thing with off-road cycling is that there's a lot of skills that involve changes in terms of how you you ride the bike there's a lot of mental load that goes into that that you don't realize if you're used to riding the road and okay yeah you're looking out for like potholes and oil and things like that but it's not quite the same um so the idea is is that we break all of this down and deliver it in little chunks and you don't even necessarily realize that you're learning inverted commas because you're actually just out on a ride with a bunch of friends and you're having fun um and I think a really important thing with the school of rocks is that like it's really like participation based and if you want to come along and have a go and you're not ready to try a particular like descent you can just get off and walk it you can have a go like it's just this really like non-judgmental atmosphere and it's like everybody's decided to come along and and be vulnerable and have a go um and and you laugh and you have fun and you know you you learn how to ride off road without it without it being like a painful struggle That's brilliant. And I guess, like you say, that's a great way to kind of reduce this gender gap between off-road cycling and women and men. But what about if you're a guy trying to get into off-road cycling? Can can they come along to the School of Rocks? Presumably not. But would you just recommend the same kind of toolkit as what you're advising with the School of Rocks and to just kind of give it a go, find some friends who are supportive and not judgmental and not going to push you beyond your limits? So we actually had a really long conversation about this when we were starting like the scaling process um, about whether or not men were allowed to come or not. And we decided that, yes, they are. So like men are allowed to come along. Um, It's important that it's still female led. Um, And I think because we've got because of the way that we've started, we have that critical mass of women, um, non-binary and trans riders that like actually if a a cis man turns up, um, they're not kind of diluting or detracting from that because we kind of already have that critical mass and I think the really important thing that we want to promote as well is allyship like there's no point having a conversation about diversity and off-road riding if we're excluding the majority 
Um, it's really important that we educate men about how they can change their behaviour, about things that they could do to help women level up, um, but also to recognise that, like, you know, women are the people in, in our society, certainly in the UK, who take on the biggest burden of unpaid care work. So actually, you know, if a guy can do the babysitting and let his wife come along or, you know, something that, you know, that, that is important, but yeah, they can come on the rides. Um, our curriculum is all online. Um, we've got a website in development at the moment. And I think, I think anybody can take that and look at how it breaks everything down. They can access our roots um, and they can, they can go out and, and kind of like yeah play along, do their homework. <laughs> <laughs> so for people who have just listened to this and thought, well, that is exactly what I need to kind of, build up my skills on gravel or on the mountain bike how do they actually access a school of rocks curriculum so um, they can find us on instagram we are at the school of rocks um, and then the curriculum is all um, through our link in bio um, and we are also really active on discord so we've got a discord server um, under the link in bio it's school chat um, and in there that's kind of like where the community lives online and there's lots of different topics from um, snacks uh, routes and adventures that people have done or want to do what events they're looking at doing as well I think um, if you're looking to do an event to have a goal and something to really work towards it's nice to know that there's going to be some friendly faces there um, and there are also then individual like location chats as well. So they could find maybe like their nearest school there and drop a message and say, hey, I'm new. So that is a really good way to address kind of getting into the off-road side. But what about equipment? How important is it to have the right equipment? Maybe, Liam, this is a question for you. Um, do you need to have the newest all singing, all dancing, all road gravel bike um, with the power shift hub, which we're talking about in this episode in a different segment? Um, or, or can you just turn up on your road bike and maybe put some 32C tyres on? How important is it to have shiny equipment? I don't think it's that important. I think the main thing is that your equipment is safe uh, so that your brakes work, etc. Yeah, in terms of how expensive it is, it doesn't really matter. Um, I think it's, it's more about your attitude, I think, at least when you're starting to, to having fun. Um, there's, there's plenty of stuff that's more fun on an inappropriate bike. Uh, I would definitely second, second that. The number of times I've been out on my road bike and done, uh, well, really stupid, stupid things. Or people have ridden mountain biking segments and I said, can I do that on my road bike? But it's really fun, isn't it? Yeah. And I think a lot of the sort of boom in gravel biking is because mountain bikes have got so good um, that they actually make a lot of riding a bit boring now. Um, so I think that's where the kind of gravel bikings, gravel bikes are getting more popular. Um, so I think, yeah, you can kind of use anything really um, as long as, yeah. It, it kind of depends on, on your skill level as to what you can get away with um, in terms of your tyres and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think it's important to mention as well, a lot of road bikes um, do have a lot of space for bigger bigger tyres. And so maybe you, you don't even need new wheels. You can just put a higher volume tyre on there and then you can get away with a lot, lot more. You know, if you're maybe running a 23 or a 25C, you might even have space up to 32 on the frame that you're running. Um 
and then may- maybe you might need to go down to a 650B wheel. But even then, all you, all you need to change is the wheel rather than the whole frame. You don't actually need a whole new bike. And well, also, don't, oh, forget, don't Just, forget the humble flat bar gravel bike, a.k.a. the hybrid, which is actually perfectly suited to what we would call gravel riding, it's got a flat bar, so you've got really great control over your front wheel. You've got often higher volume tyres, really puncture-resistant casing, nice, easy, spinny gears, and they often have a, um, a suspension fork. Like, they're actually, you could argue there is nothing better. And that is the most, and I think this is what sometimes we suffer with because we are cyclists. We like to pigeonhole things as like, this is, mountain biking this is gravel biking and actually like let's just take a slightly broader view of this and I, I think that's what's quite what gravel biking is like gravel riding and adventure riding is trying to do is to kind of break down those ideas about what a certain genre of, of riding is um and like you're seeing that as well with like the clothing you know people are wearing like just t-shirts and shorts and hopefully it will it will start to remove some of the snobbishness that that can be associated with cycling and that cliqueiness like oh, what are you are you a mountain biker or a gravel rider it's like oh well actually this is my shopping bike <laughs> yeah uh, and the biggest barrier to cycling which i see is is money um yeah. and i think that you know for me when i was getting into cycling i turned up to a sportive on a, a 100 pound bike that i got from gumtree uh, I wore my trainers. I wore a T-shirt from a charity school event about five years previously and just a pair of normal shorts. And I was on this event and people were kind of not laughing at me on the way around, but saying, oh, you know, is that what you're wearing? And somebody came up to me at the end and they said, oh, I think halfway through I said, oh, keep going, love. And then actually you beat me. And it was a hundred mile. Uh, it was a 100 mile sportive. So it's not about what you look like. And I've been out on the mountain bike recently dressed in my racing Lycra and I get laughed at, but it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm having fun and who cares what you look like? And I think that is the perfect way to bring us on to um, your Highland Trail attempt, Liam, which was an absolutely fantastic effort. And I think maybe I'll just let you introduce it because you were the star of the show. Um, tell us what it was and when it was, first of all, and then we'll go on to talk about your amazing equipment. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so the the Highland Trail is um, a bikepacking race. Um, So for those who don't know what that is, um, it's generally a multi-day race, um, which is a single stage, so the clock never stops. Um, And the idea is that they're they're self-supported, so there's no uh, support crew or team car or anything like that. Um, and you've, you've only got access to publicly available services. Um, so the route starts in Tindrum, which is kind of halfway between Glasgow and Fort William, uh, and then does sort of big, big loop up to near the north coast of Scotland and then back down the west coast. Um, and it's about 550 miles uh, in total. And so that happens uh, usually the last weekend of May or around there every year. So that's eight eight nine hundred kilometers roughly long a long long way <laughs> yeah quite a long way and it's and it's yeah mostly off-road so it's definitely a mountain bikey mountain biking route and it's the kind of route that if you were going to attempt you would think well i probably need the latest full suspension mountain bike i probably need 
the highest quality bike bags with the best waterproof ability because I'm going into the Scottish Highlands. So Liam, what bike did you decide to tackle this event on? <laughs> um, so I, I used a, um, it's called a Stooge Scrambler. Um, so it's a steel, uh, fully rigid uh, bike uh, that I also ran single speed as well. And just um, to so clarify, fully rigid, fully bike. rigid means no front suspension and no rear suspension. That's correct. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. And single speed, one gear. Yeah. Yeah. And well, I mean, firstly, congratulations on that's bonkers for even thinking to attempt a race like this on a bike like that. How much did it cost to build up that bike? Um. So I think that the frame and fork uh, go for £600, so that was new. Um, and then I had a few other bits and bobs from other bikes. Um, I think I bought a new front wheel that's completely mismatched to the rest of the bike. Um, so, yeah, that's blue and my bike's green. Um, I don't know. It's probably less than 1500 definitely, but probably nearer to £1,000. Okay, so attempting a route like that on a bike like this, you think you would think you are only destined to fail <laughs> and the weather wasn't great for the race was it either no, but no it's pretty cold tell us a little bit how the race unfolded um so yeah i mean i going into the race i mean i i won the race before um so i kind of knew what i was what i was in for um but i'd never done it on on this bike before never done it a single speed um, so I, I wasn't really sure even if I could finish. Um, and yeah, I never, never really done something this long on a rigid bike either. So I was a bit worried about my wrists. Um, so when I set off, I was just, all I had in mind was just to try and try and finish. Um, so yeah, then during the course, course of the first day, um, right at the start, everyone left me behind on the road cause I was completely spun out and, uh yeah they were just off in their big gears um but then throughout the day i kind of caught everyone up again once we got into the more mountain bikey stuff um and yeah and then it was just sort of three and a half days of uh yeah the, so the first night was sub-zero really cold uh and then we had quite a lot of rain on the third day um but yeah it becomes a bit of a blur after sort of day three um <laughs> you're not you're not sleeping very much on these things so yeah, it's just a, a crazy sort of whirlwind event. And well, how did it finish? Um, so, well, I, I won it. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, quite unexpected. Uh, kind of when I was off, that, that at all what I was expecting out of the race. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a funny one because, yeah, at the end of the day, you're, you are racing yourself a lot of the time. And, I think apart from about half a day, I was basically just on my own the whole time. Um, so it, it's kind of, it doesn't really feel like you're racing other people um, so much as just seeing how, how hard you can push yourself. Well, well, I mean, if that's not the message to say, if you think you've got the wrong equipment and you think you have to have everything right, then not just go for it, then please just go for it and dive in because who knows what can happen. Maybe you will win one of the world's hardest mountain bike time trials on a absolutely ridiculously inappropriate bike. <laughs> and would you recommend that strategy, Liam? <laughs> um, yeah, I think the, so the, the reason I, I kind of did it on that bike was to kind of get in the mindset of, 
well i a i didn't know if i could finish and that's that's the reason why i do these things is to to kind of test yourself and you've got to have that uncertainty there at the start um but also it's just to focus on on your own race and not try and race other people um so i think that that's definitely the mindset i would always recommend to go into these things um because if if you think about racing other people well it could either go two ways you could either win or you'll probably not finish um so i think that the mindset's important um and then in terms of would i recommend other people to go single speed with that bike um probably not uh, <laughs> i think the the route is the highland trail route is is really well balanced so i think there's there's so many different bike or types of bikes um that you can win it with because some bits are better with some types of bikes and some bits are worse um so what the message i say is it doesn't really matter what what bike you come with as long as it's you know a kind of mountain bike um it, it's more about you know how familiar you are with your bike and how you deal with, with the terrain on it. I think I would also add an observation because when you bought the Stooge, you bought it for like off-road touring because it's got loads of mounts and um, and then once you built it up, you just loved riding it. You were like a child kind of like rediscovering their favorite sport all over again. And I remember in some of the pictures um, that James Robertson took um, around various parts of the Highland Trail where it was really remote and it was chucking it down with rain and loads of the other competitors looked like they were suffering and you just had this big grin on your face. And I think that's like you, when you were riding that bike, you are having like the time of your life. You're a child playing. And I think that's the really important thing is that like we obsess so much over gear and like tire clearance or this, that, the other, or whatever you said that was bound, whatever thing was. And, <laughs> you know, if it, if it doesn't bring a smile to your face, if it doesn't make you feel like you're dancing on the, on the bike and playing around, then it's kind of like we, we lost sight of why we're doing this. And I think like, that's my, that's my theory as to why Liam was able to, one of the reasons why he was able to push so deep because he was, yes, he was suffering, but that's not how he labeled it in his mind. He's, he, he was enjoying himself. He was in the Highlands of Scotland, riding his favorite bike, having a whale of a time um, rather than like in a race and suffering. So like the, the experience is the same, but the, the labels, I guess that he put on that were quite different to maybe what the other competitors were doing. I completely echo that myself with having recently bought a mountain bike and gone off road and just, you know, for me, it's so important, you know, power, speed, distance, you know, all of these metrics that I use to track my training. But I think the one metric that we don't use in professional cycling is kind of um, mental stability or um, happiness. And I actually think, and, and motivation, you know, it's, it's probably the most important metric I mean let's call it a metric but it is not a metric um and it's it's not included in our our training peaks calculations or anything like that but going off road and seeing these views that I see every single day but seeing them from a very slightly different angle just gives me so much joy so much pleasure so much excitement and enthusiasm for the bike and I really really think that that is why there's been such an explosion in popularity of gravel riding and mountain bike riding of course in addition to the fact that you don't have 
the traffic and the cars in the same way that you do with the on-road riding. 100%. Well, finally, Liam, <laughs> so you had to carry all of your kit on this event, didn't you? And, and how, how, long, how long does it take you to complete the whole, whole 550 miles? Uh, so it's just over half days, so three days, 13 hours, I think. <laughs> um, I did it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I was expecting you were going to say about a week. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but how did you carry all of your kit? Because I think that is bikepacking is something that people really, really want to get into. But um, how? How do you start bikepacking? Uh, what do you need? And well, thirdly, how do we make it affordable? Because there are loads of brilliant, really shiny bike bags out there. But if you buy a whole set for your bike, I mean, it could set you back near near to a thousand pounds. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think, yeah, that definitely if you go out and just buy one bag of each of the things you see in the magazines, yeah, it's hundreds and hundreds of pounds. Um, and it kind of goes against the whole ethos of yeah accessibility and the reason you might want to go bikepacking in the first place is just to get out there with a uh, little faff and yeah so the first bikepacking trip i ever did um i think all i did was strap two alkit dry bags to my bike um so yeah i think that that was it really um so i don't know how much they are these days but it's like 20 quid or 30 quid or something um that plus a rucksack and you can get kind of mo most of your stuff for a at least one overnighter. Um, so that's how I'd recommend people to start. Because um, you also, I think people like to carry their weight on the bike in different ways. Um, so that's part of the process is figuring out what works with your bike. And if you like more weight on the handlebars or on the seat post and all that stuff. Um, and it's a bit expensive to do that if you're buying bags. So I, I always start kind of at the cheap end, just strap a couple of dry bags on, start that way. Um, and then you can either buy some more expensive bags or, or yeah with more functionality or there's there's quite a big um kind of diy scene uh for bikepacking bags i think because when the sort of sport or whatever you want to call it originally started um there were just no commercial options around so people had to had to make their own stuff um so there's so many resources online and if you've got a sewing machine or even without a sewing machine um there's plenty of information on, on how to make your own bags. Um, so if, if that's, if you're a kind of creative do it yourself sort of person, then you can also go that, go that route as well. I actually have done exactly that. I had an old waterproof jacket that was absolutely full of holes. Um, but I'd kept it just in case it was useful for something and I cut it up and I made it into a front bag and it wasn't that waterproof because I'd sewed a lot of holes into it, but you can create waterproof liners. Um, and like you said, you can uh, use a dry bag and then you can create a bag that you can just strap onto your handlebars. Uh, what was your first foray with a sewing machine, Liam? <laughs> because I know that this is a Road CC article. If you Google make your own bike bags, the Liam Glenn will probably come up with how to do it. So tell us about your first foray into uh, sewing machines so, and bike yeah. bags. <laughs> So, so I think that blog was the first time I ever used the sewing machine. Um, so it's a bit annoying when I, I search for things and I find that because uh, I didn't do a very good job. So <laughs> um, search for how to yeah, do so a I bike bag properly and you find your own uh, cowboy version of yeah. how to do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Um, but it worked. It so worked, I, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I used that the set of bags I made on that blog post. I think I, I did a coast to coast across the Pyrenees off road with those bags. Um, and they were still in one piece at the end. So they, they did their job. Um, but I think that, that was just a whole doll I chopped up and turned into some holsters for some dry bags. Um, but yeah, the, basically, don't don't let previous experience hold you back because um, some of them, some of the bags aren't aren't really that hard to make yourself. Um, yeah, you just like a frame bag, for example. Um, so I I made the frame bag I used on Highland Trail, um, and that's really simple to do. And often. I think the frame bag is probably a good one to make yourself because frames are all sorts of different shapes and sizes and it's very hard to get. Um, well, you either get a custom one built for you um, or you you have to get very lucky in order to get something that's going to fit your bike properly. Um, so that's a great one to kind of do it yourself. And then finally, I think the secondhand market, both for uh, bike bags and for bike clothing, is absolutely excellent. I don't know if you guys have dabbled with that much, but... If you just have a look online, it's full of eBay or wherever or Facebook Marketplace. It is full of amazing secondhand goods, which have often hardly been used or, you know, definitely not had their life's worth. Um, And it's a great way, a great affordable way to get um, clothing, bags, any sort of bike kit. Um, So, yeah, have a look. I don't know if you guys have, have done that. Yeah, my sleeping bag was an eBay find. It was a classic. Uh, bought this for my wife and she decided she didn't like camping. And I was like, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you both so much. Uh, hopefully that has helped you all want to get into off-road cycling and given you a few tips of how to do it in a more accessible and affordable way. And if you are interested in checking out the School of Rocks, go and have a look on Instagram. Elena, just remind us of the Instagram handle for School of Rocks. So we are at School of Rocks. Okay. Yeah, just go from the beginning of that. Uh, Yeah, so on Instagram, we are at the School of Rocks and the website will be schoolofrocks.com. Brilliant. Thank you both so much. Well, Lizzie, probably time to wrap up there. Um, I just want- oh, 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 that's a good one. That was completely (laughs) accidental. Um, I just want to say, um, well, happy Christmas and uh, happy new year to you. I, um, I mean, I'm, I hope that 2022 is fantastic for you, Lizzie, because I know you have had it rough this year. You haven't, <laughs> you haven't raced. You haven't done a single race this year. And as a pro... No, I did two races. Oh, did you? What did you do? Yeah, I mean, they were so terrible that, that it's better that we just forget about them. Did that happen? What, 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 I forgot which races. Did you... Did you... I'm leaping Strada. Oh, of course. Do you know what? I was, yeah. I was thinking that your crash was a bit... Yeah, of course you, of course you did those two. But it's better to just write, write it off. Write it off from all memory. Well, listen, <laughs> and so it's been, it's been a struggle. But honestly, I think 2022 is going to be great for you. And, and as, a, as a pro, it must have been... You know, it must have been incredibly frustrating and, and hard. So um, I am looking forward to seeing you. When, when can we see you, Lizzie, actually? When, when do we get the first chance to see you? Do we know? Well, first thing to say is I don't think... Uh, 2022 can be as bad as this year so that's don't that's say good. that don't <laughs> say stuff like that <laughs> jesus well the only the only way is up let's hope probably the only way is up um yeah i'll be in action at omelette pet newsblad um and then strada bianchi which will hopefully go a little bit better than last year again surely it can only get better um and then where am i after that i've actually completely forgotten maybe it's 
knocker a corsair. Um, but yeah, first race will be on loop at the end of February, followed by Strada. So really, really excited. And next year on my calendar for the first time is Flanders, because I've never actually raced Flanders. Why not? Because, Why haven't you done Flanders before? Well, because you know what? I have you, you hardly done any racing. But you, I was in... You were so good in Omloop. I mean, I would have thought <laughs> Flanders would be, you know, absolutely part of that, you know, part of your calendar. Well, it has been, but first year I was a pro, I was in the US, second second and third year, so my first pro- professional season in Europe, um, I crashed at um, Depana just before Flanders, so right. I wasn't able to race because I was out from that. Uh, then 2020, Flanders was delayed until um, October, then my team folded and we couldn't race. And then in 2021, I crashed at Strada and I wasn't able to race. So, you know, I've actually, I've only had one season in Europe. I've had a season in Europe and then I've had a tiny bit of a pandemic season and then I've had no season this year. So I actually feel a bit like a neo pro. You know, sometimes people say to me like, oh, you know, you're experienced and all this, but it's like, I actually haven't done half of these races. I've never raced Ghent. I've never raced Flanders. Um, And it's going to be really, really cool. Um, I'm really excited to go into it as, yeah, as somebody who's not been there before. I think it'll be so exciting. Um, But yeah, people sometimes ask me what my favorite race is. And I can't say Flanders because I've, I've not done it. You know, I love Omloop. Absolutely love it. Love it, love it, love it. Um, but I can't wait to do something like Flanders and, and hopefully, fingers crossed, have the crowds because the atmosphere at a race like that is really what makes it. When you have, you know, we've always had it at Le Course by Tour de France. We've always had incredible crowds. But then if you take that over to Belgium and you've got all of the cobbled mm. climbs and the suffering and all of that, it just takes it to another level. So, yeah. That's the dream. And Roubaix? Roubaix? This would, Roubaix? Yeah, Roubaix's on the calendar. And I'm really excited about that, actually. Um, again, talk about that a little bit with uh, Christmas conversation with Ian Boswell coming to the front. All right, podcast. I know. I've got to edit it in a minute. I know, Lizzie. All right, <laughs> come on. I've got loads to do. Get ready for Christmas. But yeah, it's, um, it's a really exciting prospect. And I think that it's a mark of, you know, how well recovered I am, how excited I am and looking forward to it because even a couple of months ago I was really like oh well yeah Roubaix would be nice but what if I crash and now I know that I know that crashing is a part of cycling and I will crash next year but I'm not scared to hit my head anymore like I was previously um so yeah it's I just I just can't wait to get back to it I've got childlike enthusiasm at the moment um for everything that's to come and yeah, just a good refresh, a restart, and lots of new things coming up. Brilliant. And if you do want to listen to that conversation between Lizzie and Ian Boswell, you can find it. It will come out just after Christmas, won't it, on the uh, Friends of the Podcast feed. So if you haven't signed up as a friend of the podcast, uh, do that. You get so many extras. In fact, I mean, that's what's keeping me busy. I mean, I'm, I'm probably not going to celebrate Christmas this this year because I'm just making <laughs> Friends of the Podcast episodes. There's so many. There's going to be a, a Christmas selection box going out between uh, Christmas and New Year. Some great stuff. So, uh, yeah, do sign up for that. And, um, yeah, we'll see you in the new year when Lizzie is back and racing. Yes. She's back. Yes. Um, do you know what? We, <laughs> Happy... we didn't mention concussion once, really, in this conversation between us, Lizzie. We didn't, I didn't, I didn't yeah, I mention know. it for the first time in about a year. So Things are a-changing. Awesome. Happy Christmas. Happy holidays to everybody. <laughs> <laughs>